Good morning. My name is Ricardo. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the honor and privilege today of, of bringing God's word to you guys. If you have been with us for a while now, you would know that we are in the book of Ephesians, and we've been in the book of Ephesians since January. It's when we started that journey, and we're coming to the end here. It's been about seven, eight months, and we are coming to the end of our time in the book of Ephesians. It's really just two more messages after today, and then we're done with the book of Ephesians. And it is our prayer here at the Elder Board that through this time, through the past seven months, that you guys have been encouraged, that you guys have been edified and really convicted and sanctified through the preaching of Ephesians, that we have grown not only in our individual faiths, but also as a church, that we've united as one. We've come under our Lord Jesus Christ and really united as a church. And that's our prayer, that if we can leave this book and say that we have each have grown stronger in our faith as individuals, but also that we've grown stronger as a church, that we would have made our go as the elders. So that's what we've, our prayer is for that. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've kind of slowed down a bit here in the book of Ephesians. And we've really just been looking at, at, the, at the armor of God and just taking each week to look at one piece of the armor. And for the second week in a row, we're in verse 17. And we may be asking ourselves, why? Why, why are we spending so much time on the armor of God? And I think we have the answer, actually, in Ephesians 6, 12, where Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why spend so much time in the armor of God? It's because we are in battle. We are in spiritual warfare with the enemy. And if we don't gather ourselves the right way, if we don't put the proper armor on, we're setting ourselves up for failure in this battle. So we're in the middle of the spiritual battle. We're in the middle of it. And we have to use what God has given us. And that's what we have here in the armor of God. And if you would have noticed over the past five weeks, each piece of armor that we looked at from the breastplate of righteousness to the belt of truth, to the shield of faith, to the boots of peace, to the helmet of salvation, all that has been for our protection, to put on, to protect us against the attacks of the enemy. And this week at the end of verse 17, this is kind of a, the first true offensive piece of weapon that we get from the armor of God, where everything up to this point has been defensively. We now are given the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as an offensive weapon. And when we use that appropriately, it could be used mainly to deal blows to Satan, but also as a defensive weapon. So that's what we're going to look at today is at the end of verse 17. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for us as believers to take the sword of the spirit? And so that's what I hope to you know, share with you guys and just share what God has been putting on my heart. But the, the main idea, the thesis statement, if I, if I may, for today's message is this, that Christians are given the sword of the spirit as the first true offensive weapon. And when it is used appropriately and when it is used often, it could be used both to defend against the attacks of Satan and to give a severe blow to Satan. I'll say that again. Christians are given the sword of the spirit as the first true offensive weapon. And when it is used appropriately and often, it could be used to both defend against the Satan's attacks and give a severe blow to Satan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to gather as a church body, Father. There's so many churches across our country and across the world who, who don't have that honor, that privilege to gather and sing songs together and praise you together and sit under the preaching of your word. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for this time that we have together, Lord. Maybe a time of growth for us, maybe a time of conviction. 
May you start to chisel away at the areas in our lives that have grown hard towards your word, Father. And may we grow in understanding of your love and of your word and what it means for us, Father. Bless this time together. Bless the several moments that we're going to have in your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. We eliminate any distractions. And may we leave today different from the people that walked in. We thank you for this time, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be edifying to this congregation. In your name we pray. Amen. And as I said, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 17, but I want to read 16 and 17 just to kind of give us this context. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so I want to give us some historical significance here to the sword of the spirit, because it's not this big, broad sword that I know when I first was reading this passage, that's what I had in my mind, this big, broad sword that's three to four feet tall. And it's those ones that you see in the movie that kind of just swing and hopefully you hit something. And it's not that this isn't the sword that Paul is talking about. It's more um, accurately portrayed as, as a small dagger. It's anywhere from six to 18 inches long. And I thought about bringing one in as an example, but I don't have one, so I couldn't. But anyway, it's, yeah, it's 6 to 18 inches long. And as um, Frank Thielman in his commentary puts it, he describes the sword this way. It's short enough to chop fruit, but large enough to cause seriously bodily harm. So it's not this big sword. Something that was small, 6 to 18, 18 inches long, that oftentimes was onto the right side of the Roman soldiers in a sheath. And it was there. It was read it easily accessible for the soldiers to use when they needed to. They had the shield of faith in one hand, their left hand side, then oftentimes on the right they had this sword of the spirit. Like I said, it was more like a dagger, and if it's small and effective like that, you can't really just hope to hit something. You don't go swinging this sword hoping you're going to poke someone and maybe deal some type of blow. To use this dagger-like sword appropriately, you had to be effective with it. You had, to be, you had to use it the right way. You had to use it at the right opportunity, and you had to be precise with this sword in order for it to be effective in battle. And that same theory applies to the sword that we're given, which is the Word of God. That in order for it to be used appropriately, it has to be used precisely. It has to be used correctly. And if not, then it's not effective. So that's the sword that Paul was thinking about here. And that's the same type of idea that's behind the sword, which is the word of God, which is this, the Bible, which we got. And so that's the historical significance. So what does Paul mean when he says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? First, what Paul isn't saying is that the spirit is the sword. That's not what Paul's saying. So when we read this, don't think, oh, the Holy Spirit is the sword. But rather, what Paul's getting at is that the sword comes from the Spirit. That the, that the, that the Spirit is the source of the sword. It provides the swords. That the Holy Spirit is what's going to place the sword in our hands to use at its appropriate time. And what am I talking about here? I'm simply talking about the Word of God. Right. We get this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The idea here is that this here is the word of God. This is the sword that we have. 
Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 20, verses 20 through 21, says this, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Talking about the doctrine of inspiration here, right? That inspiration is a special act of the Holy Spirit by which he guided the writers of the Scriptures so that their words would convey the thoughts he wished conveyed. They would bear a proper relationship to other inspired books and would be kept free from error, fact, doctrine, or judgment. That's Article 1, Section 2 of our Articles of Faith here in BFC. That this here is the sword of God. This is the word of God. And that's what our sword is. That's what we are to use in our battle. That's what's been given to us. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what it does is in the life of the believer, he will put the sword, this sword here, in our hands in order to use it in battle. The sword is the word of God. The spirit is the author of the written word of God and the spirit is the giver of the word of God. And the reason that we're able to understand, the reason we're able to interpret scriptures correctly is because of the, the, the helping of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But Paul doesn't simply mean just a general view of spirits here when he says the sort of spirit which is the word of God. The Greek word that Paul uses here is not the one that we're perhaps more familiar with, which is logos, right? That's the one that when we in our Christian culture, that's the one that comes to mind often. It's what we name our companies after. We got logos Bible software. We got logos Christian Academy in York. Or it's usually that's the word we see in bookstores or something. But that's not the Greek word that Paul's using here. The Greek word is rhema. Rhema, which is better translated to mean a specific truth within the larger written word of God. Truth that comes out of the written word of God. So you got logos, which means the whole scripture or the whole written word of God. This idea of rhema, what God is saying here, he's saying that use specific truths found in scripture in your battle against Satan. It's talking about a specific statement. It's talking about a specific text of Scripture or a specific passage of Scripture. That this is the story that we're given. The truths that are found in the Bible are given to us so that we can fight this battle and fight against the enemy. It's this idea of when we are in battle. It's pulling out specific truths of Scripture to use in your battle against Satan. Right? It's just not a general knowledge of, of Scripture because there's atheists out there who probably know the scriptures better than us. There's atheists out there who probably are better to memorize scripture and repeat scripture better than us. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a, a mere knowledge of the scriptures. He's talking about remembering and using specific truths throughout the scriptures as we fight against Satan. And this is why we need the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that we can apply the scriptures appropriately in our lives, in our battles, in our struggles. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't do that. Because I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is the author of the written word of God, but he's also the giver of the word of God. He's the one who gives you the word of God to remember in times of struggle. We think it's ourselves. We think that we're doing the work, but it's really the grace of God through the working of the Holy Spirit that we're able to even comprehend the scriptures, that we're able to understand, that we're able to recall it when when we need it. And so when we read the word, when we read the Bible, we need to be reading it prayerfully. We pray before and after, praying that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand, helps us to remember, helps us to apply the scriptures appropriately and correctly. 
And that's what's going to help us. That's what the sword is. That's the weapon that we're given. It's that those specific truths found in the word of God that will help us in our fight against temptation. That will help us to remember, that will bring up certain passages. And this kind of gets me to my first point is, is how are we to use the sword? First, I know I said that it's primarily offensive weapon, but if we're using it appropriately and correctly in our lives, the sword could also be used as a defensive weapon. Defensively, the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, could and should be used to fight temptation and repel the lies of Satan. Right? We use it as we are struggling in life to remember the goodness of God. The primary example of this is found in, in the Gospels when Jesus is tempted. We see it in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4. And for, for a little bit, I want to just be in Matthew 4. And we know this time, right, where Jesus is being tempted. He's come. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. The heavens open up. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. And immediately after that, we see that, that, that Jesus is led into, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Then it says he was hungry, and a tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on the very word of God. So Satan comes, he knows that Jesus has been fasting, he knows that Jesus is hungry, and it's not a bad thing to be hungry, it's not a bad thing to want good food. But he tries to tempt them. He says, turn these stones into loaves. And how does Jesus answer? He gives them scripture. So what does Satan does next? He takes them up to the top of the temple and says, jump. And he says, before he says, he says, jump. And Satan then quotes scripture. For he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against stone. Look at that. Gee, the Satan will use the scriptures to try to twist it. And if we don't have a proper understanding of what the scriptures are saying, if we're not memorizing, if we're not studying, if we're not meditating, if we're not immersing ourselves in the scriptures, then we're going to fall. We're going to fall in our temptation because Satan will use the scriptures against you. So how does Jesus reply to him? Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then one last time, Satan takes him up to the, to the highest mountain, highest hill in the city. and says, this could be all yours if you just bow down and worship me. And he's appealing there to his human nature, right? This is, could be all yours. It's going to be yours, but you can, this will be yours now if you do this. And what does Jesus say? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so we see that each time that that Jesus is tempted, that that he replies to Satan with specific truths of the scripture. But I want us to understand that the truths that he's looking at have to deal directly with what he's being tempted with or what he's being tempted about. He's just not throwing random scriptures at, at the Satan, but he's throwing scriptures that will go completely against what he's trying to tempt them with. So it's not that, that, that this mere knowledge is just not something that we do for the likes of it. We don't just read the Bible as we, have, as we read a novel, but we read it to internalize the truths. 
If we are going to ward off the attacks of Satan, if we're going to repel the lies of Satan and deflect the things that he throws at us, then we better understand the truths of Scripture. It's just not enough to know it. It's not enough to memorize Scripture. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think we need to get into that practice. But a mere memorizing Scriptures and being able to recount random Scriptures is not going to help you in your battle. If life is getting difficult, if, if maybe you've lost a loved one or maybe you lost your job and you're on the verge of losing your house and life is just really hard and you're struggling, you're starting to doubt and people are coming to you and, and questioning like, does God really love you? Does he really care for you? Would you really be going through this if God really loved you at that time? Does us no good to memorize the genealogies? There's no good to say, you know what, I'm going to recount the genealogies. I'm not saying that they're not, it's not good to remember them, but it's not going to be effective at that time to just start quoting the genealogies. But rather, we hold on to the truths of Scripture that we find in Romans 8, 28, 30, and we know that those who love God, all things will work together for their good, for those he called according to his purpose. For those whom he knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of, of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's what's going to get us through tough times, is realizing that God's love for us is so Fast, that even when we don't feel him working in our lives, we know that he is because that's what the scriptures teach us. We see it all throughout scriptures. We see it with, with Joseph when he, when he quotes, when he's talking to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's the truth that we have to cling on in those hard times. That's what's going to be effective. Not the genealogies, but memorizing the truth of the scripture of how God loves works in our lives. And so we, we use the word of God, we study it, we internalize it. Because then in those times of battle, when we're struggling, when we need scriptures, the Holy Spirit will put the proper scriptures into our hands to be used to ward off the lies of Satan. And that is why we have to keep the scriptures handy. I'm not saying we just keep the Bible open. I'm not saying that we have a Bible app on our phone, but that we're internalizing the Bible, that we're saturating ourselves with the truth of scripture so that it's penetrating our souls, so that the scriptures is transforming us, it's changing us, so that we can apply it appropriately in in our battles against Satan. It's not just memorizing, but it's internalizing the truth. And then you're able to use it properly because it's the Holy Spirit that is the giver of the word. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to place the word in your hands to use in those times of battle. And so that's how you can use the scriptures defensively. But now I want to talk about how to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, offensively in our lives. And this is an offensive weapon. You don't win a game, to use a sports analogy, you don't win the game by merely just playing defense the whole time. At some point, you have to go on the offensive. At some point, you have to take the battle to Satan. And I'm not saying you, you get your anointing oil and you go looking for some paranormal activity. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is once we've studied the scriptures, once we've internalized, once we make it a part of our daily ritual where we go and we internalize, we meditate, we study, and we try to understand the truth of the word of God, then you have to take it to where Satan has a stronghold. You have to take the word of God to where people do not know the word of God and preach the gospel to people. That's how you take the, that's how you go on the offensive by preaching the word of God, preaching the good news, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. 
to those who don't know it. Because it's through the preaching, it's through the hearing of the word of God that people will be saved. That people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We'll see that in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God of Christ. Give you one guess what word there is translated, what Greek word is translated for the word of Christ there. And so you use the gospel, you use the truth that is found all throughout the scriptures to rescue people who are enslaved to sin. You take the word to them and God will do the rest. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But it's through the hearing of the word of the scriptures that people are convicted of their sin and then they're converted. And then it's through staying in the scriptures that they're then sanctified. So you take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to save lives. That's what it means to jump on the offensive. That we no longer just keep the truth of scripture to ourselves, but that we have to go out and see lost peoples and preach the gospel to our loved ones, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to those who do not have the truth of the Bible, those who don't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, those who don't understand that he took on himself their sins so that he can put their righteousness on them. And so we take the word because the word will convict people. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the word of God that will pierce people at their hearts. It's the word of God that will convict people. And that's the only way people will be convicted. They're not convicted by our thoughts. They're not convicted by our arguments. They're convicted by the word of God. The truth is, is that no one can be converted. No one can come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior without first being convicted of the sins in their, in their lives. It's the sword of spirit, which is the word of God that does the cutting, that does the convicting. Right? We see that in Acts at Pentecost when Peter gets up there and he, and he gives this beautiful gospel message. And, and we hear, of, and we see thousands and thousands of people are saved. And what does it say in Acts 2.37? Now when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. It's through the gospel, the truth that is found in the gospel, that people will be convicted of their sins, that people will then come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it is us. It's up to us to take that battle to those areas where Satan has a stronghold in. This is why in our own personal lives, the more that we read the scriptures, the more that we study it, the more that we're convicted in our lives, the more that we understand that, that no one is good but God alone, Luke 18, 19, that all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And as we read those and we see that constantly, then we're convicted. And then what happens is the word then converts and we're converted and we start to see God for who he is. We're born again and he starts to sanctify us through the word of God. First Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, that it's through the word of God that we're born again. So it's through the word of God that, that people are convicted. It's through the word of God that people are converted. And it's through the word of God that people are sanctified or then they are cleansed in their walk. And we cannot keep that to ourselves. We have to take the word out. We have to take the sword and go to battle for the gospel. And it's through the word of God 
that people are cleansed, are washing. We read that in Ephesians 5, verse 25 and 26, right? Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And that word again here is rhema, with the truths of the gospel. That's what he washes us. That's what he cleanses us with, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are in battle with Satan, and we're only given one offensive weapon, and really that's the only offensive weapon we need, which is the word of God, that we take the word of God to those who haven't heard, and we preach the gospel to them so that they are convicted, and that the Lord will convert them, and that the Lord sanctifies them, and we win souls, and that's how we take the battle to Satan, that's how we jump on the offense, by taking the sword of the Spirit, immersing our lives in it, meditating on it, remembering it, studying it, so that the Holy Spirit can put the word in our hands as we battle against Satan. That said, in closing, first I want to talk to those in here who probably don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you may be talking, well, this is all good, Ricardo. That's all nice, but I don't need that. I'm a good person. I don't really need to open the Bible. I don't need to pray because I'm all right. And my question to you is, is who are you comparing yourself to? You may be good compared to the person next to you. You may be, compa- you may be good compared to your coworker or to that person on social media that, that's very foul mouth, that spews hate. And I'm saying, yeah, maybe compared to them. According to that standard, you may be good. But that's not the standard that we are given. We don't make up the standards for what is good or who is good. That is left to God and God alone as the creator of all things, as the one who created, who speaks, and the world came to be, who spoke, and the universe came to be, the one who from the dirt breathed life into us, and it is his rightful place to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. It is his rightful place to tell us how to live. Right? And we know, like I said earlier, Luke 18, 19, when the rich ruler called Jesus good, he goes, why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. That scripture, the standard of scripture is that God is good and God alone is good. That it does not matter what our deeds are. It does not matter what we may consider as righteousness. In the eyes of God, according to his holiness, according to his righteousness, according to his standards, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned and we all deserve death. I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death as well which means that we will be eternally separated from God and living in hell because we don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That's Romans six twenty-three. But that just doesn't end there, right? We know that, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he came to give his life for the unrighteous. So he came, he lived the life that we couldn't live. He lived perfectly. He abided by all of God's commands. And then he died the death that was rightfully ours. Living the perfect life, the one who was guiltless, guilt-free, took on the death that was rightfully ours. And on that cross, the weight of your sins, the weight of my sins, fell on his shoulders, and he took that for us. And in replacement, now we are given the righteousness of God imputed onto us. And it's how we respond to this truth. 
that determines whether we are at peace with a holy and righteous God or we are enemies of a holy and righteous God. So respond with repentance and faith. You know, I don't, that doesn't mean that, you, that you're no longer sinning, but to repent, it means that you're no longer at peace with the sin in your life. You see it, and you want to change it, and it bothers you, and you, want, and you keep praying, and you keep repenting, and you keep trying. That's what it means to be, live a life in repentance. It's not that you're sin-free, but that you're no longer live in peace. And so you put your trust in that. You put your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on that cross, that he took the death that was rightfully yours, and he died that death. And now, because of that, you put your faith in him, and God looks at you, doesn't see you for your messiness, doesn't see you for your filth, but sees the righteousness of Christ imputed onto you. And that's how we live with peace, with, at peace with God. So whoever comes, whoever casts their hope, whoever puts their trust in the atoning work of Christ, if you do that, then you live at peace with a holy and righteous God. It's this exchange that happens. Our sins are put on him, and then his righteousness is put on us in return. And that is available to anyone. All you have to do is respond with repentance and faith and put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and his work alone, not in ourselves, not in our spouses, not in our jobs, but on Jesus and Jesus alone. Some of us in here I want to talk to, not those of us who are, who are believers, who are Christians here, and my question to you is, when was the last time you opened up God's word? When was the last time you studied it, you meditated on it, you internalized the scriptures where, where you're not just reading it just because you want to read it because you want to check it off your list that you read the Bible in a year. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think we, we should be trying to do that. But at the same time, that doesn't substitute the time that we have to really dive into the scriptures. It doesn't substitute for immersing ourselves in the truths of scripture. Ian Dugut says, we need to read God's word and study it, memorize it, immerse ourselves in it, understand what it says and what it means, and believe those things. Otherwise, it will do us no good at all. If you're not studying, if you're not meditating on God's word, if you're not trying to internalize it into your lives, then it does us no good to be able to just say we've read the Bible in a year. We don't read the Bible like we read a Harry Potter novel. We read the Bible to study it, to immerse ourselves in it. And so, like I said earlier, we, we read it prayerfully. We, we, before we dive into scriptures, we pray, God, help me to understand your truth. Help me to see what it is. Help me to internalize the things that you want me to. May I be convicted in reading your word today, Father God. Then you dive into it, and then you're done. And you're like, God, help me to remember everything that I just read. Help me to apply it to my life. Help me to just share that with someone today. We need to be reading the Bible prayerfully because it's given for our good. Psalms 119.105 says, For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we, may, we might have hope. That's why we are given the holy word of God. That's why we're given the scriptures. It's for our benefit. Joshua 1.8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. 
for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. We are given the Bible as a means to battle against Satan. And if we're not studying it, if we're not using it for that, then we're just, we're just living and we're not going to be effective in our battle against Satan. I like to end with a quote. Don't know who said I heard it about 15 years ago and it just stuck with me. And it's simple. You cannot have spiritual life when the Bible is closed. Once again, you cannot have spiritual life when the Bible is closed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've given us, Father. We thank you for the work of your Son on the cross. And we realize that if it wasn't for his work on the cross, we wouldn't have this opportunity to sit and hear your word preached, Father. May we meditate on your word as we go about our lives, as, as we work to grow closer to you, may we dive into your word, may we dive into your scriptures, may we internalize it, may we memorize it, Lord, so that we can use it, so that we can apply it, so that we can live lives where we're battling and we're dealing blows to Satan and we're defending the attacks of Satan. Father God, as we go about the rest of this day, may we spend time on your day, on your Lord's day, to spend extra time in prayer, Lord, to spend time reading your word, to spend time thinking about who you are and the work you've done in our lives. And we go about the rest of this week looking at your word, internalizing it, and preaching the gospel to the lost. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.